0: blog talk radio
1: hi and welcome to the art of film funding i'm your co-host claire papan along with carol dean author of the best-selling book the art of film funding Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Our guest, Dan Addias, has worked as a director in the film and television industry since 1984. As a director of series television, he's received the Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Direction of Dramatic Television for The Wire and has been nominated for episodes of The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, Homeland, The Marvelous Mrs. uh, Maisel. His other credits include Deadwood, The Killing, True Detective, The Walking Dead, Bloodline, Friday Night Lights, Billions, and The Boys. His new book, Directing Great Television, Inside TV's New Golden Age, is available on Amazon and MWP.com. And, Carol, I know that uh, Dan's book is published by your publisher, Michael Weesey, right? Yes, Claire.
0: Michael Weesey has a wonderful group of authors with award-winning books. So thank you very much for joining us, Dan.
2: Oh, thank you, Carol and Claire. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience.
0: Yes, we want to learn more about directing for Great television and your book is delightful. I've really enjoyed reading it. It's an honest book. I have to tell everyone because you're not you, you when you went into this, it was a, a shock and it's wonderful to read in here how you don't segue in like you do on almost all of the jobs you pretty well when you step in to that directing job, you're running the show, right?
2: Yeah, you're really thrown thrown into the deep end.
0: <laughs> it's one way to learn, but that's a hard way, trust yeah. me. I'm a swimmer, I know that. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm really impressed with the TV shows you've directed because a lot of us have watched Homeland and Mrs. Meisel, I love that, but Deadwood was my favorite. I think, I think I've seen that ser- series three times. So, um thank you for all the work you're doing, because we really love it out here in your audience. So to start with... Thank you.
2: Uh, Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I I just just want to say, I was just going to add that, you know, uh, I'm delighted that you found the book interesting, because I, I really, I intended it not just for directors, but for really for fans for television and for people who are interested in the inner workings of some of these shows we all love so much.
0: And that's exactly how I'm reading it, because I'm, I'm not a director. I haven't directed anything. And to realize all of the various aspects that directors have to cover, uh, it's astonishing. And I love the night that you uh, took over the set with all by yourself on Beauty and the Beast and uh, figured it out with no one there so you could have a lot of time and look at the sets and decide which part of the set might go into one scene and better in another scene based on the character. That was
2: incredibly uh, enlightening. Well, thank you. I should tell your audience that that was, in the chapter I discussed that, I mentioned that that was the result of a very difficult and uh painful experience I had in in one of my first jobs before Beauty and the Beast where I wasn't sufficiently prepared. I kind of came in kind of just hoping for the best and wanting to just rely on inspiration in the moment. And you really, you know, it doesn't really work out very well unless you've done elaborate prep and really taken responsibility for the storytelling, which is what I really learned uh, on that episode of Beauty and the Beast.
0: Yes. Yes. It's all about telling the story the best way possible, the most engaging way for the audience, and, and getting the actors uh, to do their part. That's only one part of it. When I, I think directing, I think that means telling an actor what to do. But that's just
2: maybe one-fifth of it, right? It's, uh, it's hard to put percentage on it. I still would say that the actor's performance is probably the single most important factor in the storytelling and in terms of the audience really experiencing the story but it's it's certainly not the only one by any means by any stretch because you have to really position the viewer uh in a way that he or she can experience what's going on what is the story the director is holding the vision of the story has to kind of Decide what's important, has to, uh, you know, know where emphasis should be and know where he or she needs the audience to be at every point in the telling. Uh, so all of that is influenced by a whole slew of factors, not least of which is the position of the camera. How, how the scenes are staged, what, what, what the movement, what the behavior is of the actors, because a lot is conveyed not just through the dialogue, but by the interaction, the physical interaction, and that's something that the director develops with the cast. But in series television, there really isn't, uh, the time for a lot of rehearsals, so this is something a director has to kind of conceive really even before uh he or she works with the actors you want to be open to what the the actors have to say and ideally the actors will feel like they've discovered it themselves but you you have to kind of have a staging in mind and you have to be able to jump in to assist actors to find physical uh behavior that will assist in the storytelling and then everything else the whole the way the way the, the scene is lit whether it's moody lighting or bright lighting all of these things affect the subjective state of the audience. And if you're not in the correct subjective state, you're simply not going to be as engaged with the story as you might otherwise be.
0: Right. And, and I don't like anything that pulls me out of the story and back into my den where I'm watching it. I want to be totally in that story every every second. You know, well, Carol, let me um, just say, may I just say yes. one
2: thing to that? Because you speak to a very important thing about about not just directing but life really is, you know, we are narrative creatures. We love stories. We want stories. We don't want to be pulled back into our living world. We want to lose ourselves in the story and the experience. Because in so many important ways, uh, we define ourselves by story. We we have a story about ourselves which we're you know, most of us are not conscious of. But, you know, it, it often you know, is developed early in life, you know, I'm, uh, you know, whatever, whatever order you were in ter- in terms of the children in your family, you develop a whole narrative about that. If you're the oldest family, well, you're the one that, you know, is going to have to sacrifice for these young ones coming along. <laughs> or if you're the young one, you're the one that gets everything you want, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Or if you have difficult parents, you know, I'm the one who's stupid, who everybody thinks is stupid, so I'm stupid. All of these are self-definitions, which aren't really reality there's simply a story we're telling about ourselves and i think we want to see stories that kind of give us a sense of new possibilities so so you know it's a it's not just you know it's not just when we're viewing something that we're involved in a story but we have a great hunger for it and uh, that's what draws me to it new
0: sense of possibilities oh dan i really like that <clears throat> i like films that are empowering and obviously everybody else does too. That's why all these superhero films are taking off. But, right. and there's also the, we all love the mystery because it keeps our mind alert. I've read that that's very good for your mind is to sit and watch a mystery. If you really get engaged, you have to remember so much detail to find out who did it that uh, it's actually um, prevent it prevents Alzheimer's and other deterioration of the brain because you're constantly focused and thinking.
2: Yeah, using using your brain is a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, But you know, you're reminding me of something else. If I can just deviate a moment just on the same issue of storytelling. I was very influenced uh, along quite a while ago with a book by Bruno Bettelheim, it was called The Uses of Enchantment, and he talked about the importance of fairy tales for young children because fairy tales objectify a child's own inner struggles. Like, you know, when you're in a fairy tale like Jack and the Beanstalk with a giant, well, that's a child's own perception of the adult world. And, you know, the adults look like giants. And, you know, and they tell stories that you can get involved with and you can see characters overcome problems, challenges in your own life that you may be afraid you're not going to be able to overcome. Like this is one of the reasons fairy tales that's argued by Bettelheim are so important to children because it gives you hope. It gives you, you know, oh, I see this story could have a good outcome if I use my wits. So when you brought up the thing about detective stories, I think it's really interesting too because we all have mysteries in our lives that we haven't solved and that we, you know, fear maybe we can't solve. So I think there's something very involving about seeing a character undergoing uh, you know, uh, a treacherous situation and having to solve a mystery, because I think we'd like to believe we're going to be able to solve the mysteries in our own life.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. But, but unconsciously, I guess we are <coughs> taking that knowledge in on how to use it in our own lives.
2: Yeah. <laughs> or at well, least to give to... us hope, or at least to give us optimism that you know, there, are, there <laughs> will be solutions if we just stay attentive enough.
0: Yes. And we're back yeah. to the word empowering. I always like it yeah. when I leave the theater feeling better than I did when I went in, you know? Such a I good story. Do too.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And and I have to say that Deadwood is one of my favorite uh TV series. I just loved the characters and the story and the twists and turns. Uh so now in the first chapter of your Wonderful book, directing great television. You um, you start about um, what? Oh, you talk about what is unique about directing television shows over anything else, and we'd love to hear that.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, in so many ways, directing a feature film and directing an episode of television are identical in many, many significant ways. Like in both, you know, the director is responsible for getting the actor's performances. Uh, The director is responsible for determining where the camera's going to go and how many shots to shoot and and then how at first to edit the show and has to answer all kinds of questions. People come to to him or her about, you know, what what about this and what about that and what about this piece of wardrobe and all that. Has to approve locations and all that kind of thing and participates in casting. And the most significant similarity is that the director in both is the only one who is making those moment to moment assessments of how the story is getting told and if the audience if, if the audience is is being put in the exact right position to appreciate the story, so those are all very similar but the, there are several big differences and i 'd say the fir- the most important one uh, to me I think is the, is the how much less time there is to achieve all of those things. A a feature film might take, you know, uh, 8 to 12 to 15 weeks just to prepare, and then shooting it might take just as long as that, whereas in an episode of television, you're given the script about seven days, seven work days before you have to start filming. And that's a lot of time. That's a very little amount of time to have to figure out some really crucial things which maybe we can go into. And then the filming itself for an hour show is generally between 8 and 10 or 11 days for the higher-end shows. So it's, it's, it's very telescoped, and you have to make a, a whole raft of key decisions very quickly, and you have to learn how to communicate very quickly. So that's another key difference. Another one is that in serialized television, meaning that not just like a courtroom like a law and order where it's one story every week and that's it. The kind of shows that are most popular right now and I love doing are the serialized shows, which go over, which follow characters throughout at least a whole season beyond that. So you're telling like one chapter in a story and you have to be mindful of what preceded it and also what's going to follow it. So you're fitting your story into that. But another really significant difference is that in television uh, it's I would say in the public view, and in, it, it, the, the writer is king. And in terms of the power relations, the writer really is, the, uh, is at the top of the pyramid. Uh, and it's understandable because the writer who has created the show is holding the vision for the whole series. And A director comes in and is, is fit, trying to fit in to that story that's being defined by the showrunner. So you have to learn to uh, uh, serve the vision of the story as defined by the showrunner as opposed to in some features, you know, you're really more on your own to determine those kind of things. So the challenge there becomes how to serve that overarching story, but still bring your own creativity to it, your own unique uh, way of perceiving and and to make contributions and, and still be significant creatively, which it's very possible still to do.
0: Right. Well, let's go back to what you were saying, because let's add, let's get into um, those other crucial things that have to be done, too. I think this is really shocking that you have seven days to, you have to read the script.
2: <laughs> yeah. And you, yeah. you may yeah. have to familiarize
0: yourself with the show by watching some, sh-
2: well, two if or three I get, scenes. when I get, hi- right, when I get uh, hired for a show. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work before I even get there, which is I'm trying to get as fully acquainted, fully immersed as I can in the whole show. So I'll, I'll try to watch as many of the episodes as I can. If I'm not familiar with the show already, I'll try to watch as many of the shows as I can to really familiarize myself, not just with the story, but with each character and what that character's inner story and inner history is. And what their their concerns are, and you know what what sometimes is referred to as the spine of each character. So I'll try to learn all of that, uh, and then uh, when I do finally get the script, um, as quickly as I can, I try to uh, have a meeting with the with the writers and showrunner to really get their sense of what's going on in each scene, not just uh, not just the behavior, not just this happens. But what's the underlying significance of everything that's happening? What's called the subtext? What, what is really the deeper – what are the deeper themes that are being explored? And, you know, you're, you're doing this all, all the while you're having to make quick – you're know, having to make decisions right away, like what location is going to work, what casting choice is going to work. That starts early on in the process as well. But the chief thing I have to do in my prep period, and I, and I think all directors should be doing this when they're directing an episode of television – is I have to find out what I personally can connect to in the story. What what can I deeply care about in this story that goes beneath the plot to something thematic, something fundamental about being a human being, about life, so that I can care a lot about each moment and fit fit each moment into that story I'm trying to tell, uh, because my feeling is that if I can't care about it, I'm not going to be very successful at making anybody else care about it. So these are the kind of things you have to develop very quickly. Uh, when I say seven days, you know, you have a weekend there. So, you know, you have, you have nine or ten days to kind of try to make all this work, but it is a it is a challenge, not for the faint of heart.
0: Right, and and most of the time, are you on a set? And do you, uh, you know, do do they give you the size of the set and pictures of the furnishings or any of those? It varies.
2: Yeah, it varies show to show. Some some shows are very set bound, and by that I should I should explain to people might not know that you know often when you're seeing an uh, an interior set on a show that looks like that is say a house it's often uh-huh. not on a real location it might be the living room and the uh, have all been recreated on the sound stage so you're shooting on, on a, in a studio for that but there are many scenes that you they don't have the budget to that might be exterior so you have to go out onto a street you have to find uh, you know whatever is written in the script Uh, And some shows have a great deal of practical locations. Like one that I used to love doing while it was still being made was Homeland. And that was, you know, almost always, you know, uh, at least half of it was out in the world and doing stunts and finding places to do that. Uh, So the shows that are all on the stage are generally just very interior shows and relationship shows. But even they often have new storylines and and new characters introduced for an episode and they will not generally build a whole house interior for one episode so you have to go find a house on location and and so it's a mix and match. My and yes, goodness. To your, point, to, your, to your point too, you do get floor plans for what the, what the uh, uh, sets are on each soundstage so you have something to prepare with but for me, I can't really prepare until I have the scenes because you don't really know how you're going to stage until you've really explored the nuances of each scene, what's really happening in each scene uh, between the characters that may not be obvious in the lines. So you can imagine behavior and where they might be in a room and what they might be doing vis-a-vis each other until you're aware of each moment that's happening between, between the characters as the scene unfolds.
0: Right. That's amazing. There's so much to know. No wonder the director is so revered on the set. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay.
2: you know, it's uh, you can also, you take a lot of heat for all that responsibility as well.
0: Yes. You, you're never going to yeah. please everyone. But if you no. if you make, uh, let's say, even 75% of the right choices, you're still going to come out with a good product because the, everybody well, why, is behind yeah,
2: you one hopes that and the one the one advantage of television too and this is true I think I mean Carol I'm sure you know your involvement with independent films you know it's uh every the best the best crew all all crew in my view should regard themselves as storytellers you know and you know whether it's the art department deciding what a what a particular character's environment should feel like or or the the stylist or the costumer, knowing what the inner state is of a character and how that character might dress everybody should be thinking story and the, it, it's a it's a beautifully collaborative art in both features and in series television, so you do have a lot of uh, collaborators that you can rely on and and you know one of the things i 've learned in my journey too as a d- directing television is is to learn to uh, enlist the help of others to, to help in ways that you might not have expertise. But still, that doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of making the final determination if whatever is suggested serves the story. Right. It's all about the story, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's, that's the only thing is. we're really doing. When you think about it, all we're really doing is telling a story. <laughs>
0: And, you know, Dan, that's the hardest thing in my film grant that we give a film grant four times a year. This is the thing I want. Tell me the story. And they're telling me why this film should be made and what the history is and what camera they want to use. And I'm saying, where's the story?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I so agree with you, Carol. and, And some people don't really understand what that question means because sometimes when you ask someone what's the story, They'll just tell you what happens. And mm-hmm. what happens is not, the, in the deepest sense, what the story is. The story is what's going on within the characters and what their journey is from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. It's not even just, you know, boy meets girl, boy gets girl or whatever it is. It's like you've got to understand why is that important to this boy? And what's in the way of this boy getting that? And what are, you know, you have to understand, to me anyway, for a compelling story, you have to understand the deeper significance. What's the meaning of this story, not just what happens? Mm-hmm. Yes, what's the meaning?
0: Of, oh, yes, you're so right. Well yeah uh, in reading your book i I read that you were a second assistant director with Coppola and Vim Venrs, two great filmmakers. So can you share some things that you learned working with them?
2: yeah, and I'd say too. I was also a second assistant director for Steven Spielberg on e t the extraterrestrial i was mm-hmm. also I also worked with George miller, who uh, not on Mad Max, but he directed Mad Max. But, yeah, the, I'd say Coppola, vendors and, and Spielberg were probably the, the most well-known directors I, I was fortunate to be an assistant director for. You know, uh, each was very unique. Uh, the other thing is I had a job to do, which was to... Uh, you know, make sure everything was there on time, make sure all the backgrounds, the extras were staged in a way that helped things out, make sure all the crew was informed always of what we were doing and what we were going next to. So I, as a second assistant director, uh, I had my hands full just trying to kind of keep the production afloat. So I didn't spend a great deal of time just idly kind of observing these guys. But what what I did appreciate in each of them is that they were each distinct they each valued their own instincts in storytelling, which I think is kind of the key for any director is to really be able to consult yourself. How how does this make me feel? How does this staging make me feel? What, what am I responding to in the story? And then you filter that through the prism of your own uh, unique self. And each of these directors did that brilliantly. So, uh, so I think that's kind of... And then, of course, you know, each had his own style and, and and I did, you know, pick up certain ways. I did try to... I did perceive the way they perceived. So it would give me an arsenal, more of an arsenal in my own thinking of, of other possibilities I hadn't thought of. That they... Gee, they approached this situation in a certain... This way. And I wouldn't have thought to do that. I would have thought to go another way. Which is not to say I gave up how I perceive, but it gives... It's an interesting thought to have in your head to think, well, someone else might have done this differently. Is that better? And then I'd have to kind of consider that it might have been a possibility I might not have thought of. But you know, this mm-hmm. is an opportunity for me to, to me to say something else, which is, I, I don't think I benefited nearly as much from my experience being an assistant director as I might have, and which I and I'll explain that in a second. But There are uh, several young directors over the years have have what they call shadowed me on projects. They've asked, can I watch you go through prep and can I watch you film to learn? And and I've I've offered that opportunity to several young people. And I tell them all exactly what I learned from what I did not do when I was Spielberg and Coppola's and Bender's assistant director. Uh, I told them, look, I want you to approach this as if you're directing the show and I want you to try to figure out solutions before you see what my solutions are. Because until you really confront what I'd call the blank page, you know, of actually how will I do this? How will I tell this story? Here's the scene we're doing tomorrow uh, on the page. <clears throat> what am I going to say to the crew when we come in? What am I going to say to the actors? How, what's my idea for staging? Even before the actors come up with maybe their own ideas. Because you have to, especially in series television where the time is so short, you have to have a staging in mind so that if nobody has an idea, you can say, "Okay, this is what I want to suggest." I want you know, and you can suggest a blocking, and you suggest a camera position. If you're not already equipped with that uh, when you show up, you're going to be lost uh, because you simply won't have time to discover it. You'll make very basic, rudimentary choices. You'll be reinventing the wheel, is, is another way of putting it. So I tell the young directors, I said, "Look, you know." you figure out how you would film something. And then when, you, and don't, you know, don't, and when we show up, you'll see what I did. And you, you'll, only by trying to figure out the staging and figuring out where you're gonna put the camera, will you discover what the challenges are of the scene. You might, you might come up with a plan that requires way too many shots than you'll have time for. It. And then you'll have to adjust before you get there. Okay, how can I do it differently? So Mm -hmm. I didn't do that when I was with Spielberg and Coppola inventors. I just kind of saw their solutions on scenes that I hadn't even bothered to consider how I would do it if I were the director. So I didn't, I couldn't appreciate fully what problems they were solving. So that's a little long-winded, forgive me, but uh, I think it was an important lesson I learned. It is
0: important. It really is, because what you're asking them to do is you're use their creative imagination. Because in our class that uh, we talk about on film funding, there's the, the standard imagination, which is taking known things and using a little of this and a little of that and creating something. That's using your imagination source, sources that are stored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the creative imagination is when you uh, you just seem to reach into the quantum field or your higher self or somebody up there. I'm, I'm 100% you.
2: with you. Carol, I'm 100% with you. You're speaking my language. <laughs> right. So I, I completely agree. And it's the same thing when you're directing actors. You want to honor that place within them. They may come up with discoveries that just bring a story to life that you hadn't even considered. And the only way that's going to happen is if you empower them to dream, to find, to to explore, and and not obligate them at the very beginning to do this a certain way you want it done. Uh, mm-hmm. it, may, it may be that they don't find something, and it may be that you have to help them find what you've discovered in it, but, but without telling them exactly how to do it. You have to, the, the trick, one of the... The rules I, you know, have for directing actors, which is not unique to me, but you, you, you try to help the actors discover it within themselves. And even if you're pointing them to what you know is there, you have to try to figure out ways to give them clues, uh, suggestions, which will empower them to find it within themselves. It's never as good if you just simply do what you tell them to do. Do it this way. That's, that generally leads them to cut off from their own inner resources.
0: Yes, that's so true. Well, my son was an actor, and uh-huh. um, and he worked a lot with Corman in the beginning. Mm-hmm. That was where he got his start. And they always would say, okay, now now we'll do a Rick Dean take. And, and they would just <laughs> let him get go wild that's with good. whatever he that's felt good. the character would do. And sometimes that was the one they used, you know. So you know, hard. it's funny
2: you say that. It's funny you say that in my chapter on getting the performance in my book. I discussed precisely that, I have a little different language for it, which is when I've worked hard with an actor to get the performance where I think it should be, I'll often at the end of that, when I'm happy with it already, I'll say, okay, let's just now do one for free. It's yours. And and what's great about doing it at that point in the process is the actor is relieved of pressure to... uh, of delivering the performance because I've already told them, look, you've delivered it. You've delivered it to my satisfaction. So don't worry about doing what I've been working with you to get towards. Do it yourself now, but they will be influenced by all the work we've done. They'll be influenced by all those story points that I've tried to bring to the fore and, and all those imaginary circumstances. Maybe I've introduced that's already in their imagination, but it no longer is needs to be so tightly controlled and if they do it for free, as I call it, they can just give over to whatever instincts and responses are uniquely theirs, and often those are the best takes.
0: Absolutely. Yes, I think that's wonderful. That's really when they can give you their contribution. You know, they, yeah. they are truly yeah. relaxed and into it. Yeah. Well, Maybe um, I'll call
2: that the Rick Dean take from now on. <laughs>
0: yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, the fun thing is, looking back at some of those old Corman films, he did a lot of stuff cheap, and the studio stole so many shots from him, because back in the maybe uh, late eight, late 70s, uh, Rick was walking away from a car, and it exploded and uh, and some of the car landed on his hand and it was burning. Oh my God. But he, he knew it was one take, Corbin one take, and so he just kept walking, and it became the highlight of the show. And I've seen that same thing in so many films since then.
2: So I. Wow. I Wow. We all
0: have to honor Roger Corman. He knew what he was well, doing. Well, you know what else?
2: You know what else you point to is it's you know necessity is the mother of invention. They say, and yeah, Corman is famous for just what you have described, doing things cheap. But what's what's liberating about that uh, is that you know sometimes, as I think you kind of referenced earlier, you can really be limited by what you understand to be the rules. Well, you can't do this. You should do this. You should do something this way. And when you when you are freed from you know, having to follow rules and just do kind of what occurs to you. What's, what would be a fun way to do this? Maybe a cheap way of doing it or whatever, you know. It's like, you know, you can discover things that are, that are much better, that are going to liberate an old form and, and bring life to a product, project.
0: Yes. And I love that when when one uh, when one sees a film and there's something totally unique and I right, was watching gorsese right. 's Mean Streets last night mm, and that was 1971 mm. and he yeah. was. Um, his sound, he was using sound from one scene into another, you know, or bringing in, uh, it was an amazing use of sound in that it wasn't edited just from one scene to the next, but bled over into other scenes, and it was very effective. And I think yeah. that might have been unique to that time period.
2: Well, he's a very visceral filmmaker, and, and he trusts himself, and he's interested in subjective states and you can't really learn that exclusively from how it's been done before. You have to kind of consult yourself. You know, I was, I did an episode of the killing, which was a great show. It lasted three seasons, but, uh, I talked about this in, in my chapter on camera, but there was a sequence where, uh, the star of the show, who's a detective who's been tracking a serial killer for three seasons, uh, discovers shockingly that the, um, that the killer is, is actually her, the, the head of the department and her boss and her lover. And she finds this out precisely when they're, they're about to go uh, off together in a car to uh, their new uh, living arrangement. And how to film that, uh, I, I, you know, created a whole kind of subjective state. I imagine what would it be like to, you know, essentially be in shock and not knowing what to do and putting yourself in great vulnerability. And I, just consulted myself, how would I feel and I kind of went to a series of you know I, I was called ramp to slow motion as she's walking to get, to get into this car which which might be a prison cell for her she doesn 't know what this guy's going to do for her. Uh, I had her look directly into the lens I had the, the other character look directly into the lens I introduced a an ice cream truck to kind of pass by that we could have a slow motion following of it to show to objectify how she doesn't can't even bring herself to keep looking at this monster because she's so frightened that she just became uh, she was withdrawing from reality and I used the camera to, to objectify that put the audience in that same state all of those things came only from me consulting myself not oh I saw this in this show and did it one way no it came from how would I feel how would I perceive if I were this character in this situation so it's really it, you're really best served when you can just kind of explore your own imagination
0: Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, he's done a great job of that with his body of work. It's really wonderful.
2: Oh, thank you. But
0: it's it's so much fun uh, to go back and see uh, uh, De Niro at 25 or whatever Oh, it was. my
2: goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And Jodie Foster awesome. as a teenager. Yeah. Yes, yeah.
0: yes, that was yeah, so yeah. great. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, now in your book you talk a lot about context so I'd like to understand more of what that means because you um, you know you tell us about the challenge of storytelling and how to create context
2: so can we get yeah, into context, that yeah context is 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 something that I don't think is talked about nearly enough, because for an audience to understand your story, they have to understand the world from which it's emerging. What are the rules of that world? What are the conventions of that world? What What is the life of the characters so that, so that when things happen to them, you can understand what their subjective experience is, which is how we get involved in the story, we're, we're, we tend to identify with characters and we and in order to do that you need to understand their world and how they see. Uh, so uh, you know as a director you know far more about the story than the audience does and it can be a, a danger if you kind of assume the audience has information that they don't yet have because they only know what you tell them or what you put them in the position to be able to infer from what you told so. so I don't know. I mean, here's a funny example that just, it, it, it's it, it, different. Like, the difference between comedy and drama, for example, has, has a lot to do with context. Because, you know, in, in, in drama, in something where serious tragedy is a possibility, you have to set that context. You have to show things that prepare an audience to think that terrible things could happen in a way that I would personally dread. You know, whereas in comedy, you're trying to kind of reassure them, like, let's go for this ride because terrible things might happen, but you know what? They're not really so terrible. Nobody's going to really die or nobody's going to, you know, or death isn't even the end of it in this particular world. That might be a context you have to establish for the audience to kind of understand it. So uh, it's, I even go so far as to try to create context entering every scene because it's like, if you don't somehow establish what's going on in this scene or what's the circumstance, if we're in a new location, Uh, I might want to acquaint the audience just visually with, okay, where are we and what's going on here before I get into all the dialogue? Because uh, even though an audience might understand from simply hearing the dialogue what the scene is about, you don't want them having to use part of their brain to kind of ask themselves, wait a minute, where are we? What's going on? Where are we in the story here? Oh, okay, yeah, I got that. Oh, yeah, now I, I heard that other dialogue. And now, okay, now I'm up to speed on the scene. You don't want that. You want them fully experiencing a dramatic moment from the very beginning. And for that, you have to reassure them. This isn't something an audience is necessarily even aware of. You know, they're following, they think they're following the story, but if they're having to use too much effort to kind of figure out, wait a minute, when are we and what's going on? You you try to, you know, ease the storytelling by setting the context uh, sooner so those are just some thoughts on that subject.
0: Oh, I totally agree. I saw a series uh, uh on television and it went so fast that at one point uh, they and I don't know if this was editing or directing, but you couldn't there was no indication where you were. Except that there was a flag in this man's office, and you had to know that country and say, "Okay, this is someone from that country talking to the character in the right and that's,
2: that's exactly that's exactly my point you know it's like it's, it's funny uh, you know I was thinking uh, a kind of solicitous notion when I was writing a chapter, I was thinking you know even uh you know even even in the old Charlie Brown cartoons, you know Snoopy would write. His novels, and we always start. It was a dark and stormy night. You know, it's like it's a cliche. What people would, have, but you know what? That even though that's a hackneyed use of it, think of that in terms of the lesson, the storytelling. It's like what what emotional state does that put you in with that context? If something is a dark and stormy night, you're going to have a different uh, response to what comes next. So it's yes. like if you just, you know, and it's like I uh, sometimes I think of it like. You know, if you're telling a story around a campfire in the in the depths of the forest, and that's the only light, and you've got the light flickering off the faces of the kids around the fire as you're telling a story to, it'd be pretty easy to start telling a horror story. That'd be they're already scared, you know. But if you're telling it to them in a brightly lit fluorescent (laughs) room, you know what devices would you need to use to get them into that same mindset that the environment. That other environment immediately put them in. I mean, that's a, a, one way of thinking what you're doing when you're telling a story. You're, you're trying to set the subjective state before the story even happens so that they're in the right place to receive it.
0: Yes. Yes, that's a lot of fun. Uh, right. And kids love that because I went yeah. on a trip with my granddaughter and it was to the Four Corners to see, to learn all about the Indians. Oh, yeah. And, um, and so the, the whole group wanted me to uh, read them stories at night, but scary stories. <laughs>
1: right. 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 So, so
0: uh, everybody had to get in bed, all covered up, and then they could hear the scary story, right? That's and right. So That's they were all prepped for it, like a dark night, dark and stormy night. <laughs> that was fun. Well, it's all about stories. It's wonderful. Well, let's talk about one of the difficult scripts that you worked with
2: well, you know they're all they all they all present challenges because you know there's you know between I'd say thirty and fifty scenes you've got to do, and you've got to figure out what the story is you're telling and and they all and then they'll each each script almost invariably has some really challenging sequence that you don't know if you have time to do it and how can I do it well with limited resources. But, you know, one show that comes to mind, maybe your audience is familiar with, is The Americans, which is a brilliant, was a brilliant, brilliant show. But I recall uh, one script I did. In fact, I have a devoted chapter to it in the book, where uh, I received my script, and it was a great script, and I loved it. But there was one sequence that really stood out like a sore thumb. I had no idea what it was about and why it was there. And, uh, I talked to the writers about it and they gave me some explanations and they didn't really satisfy me that I could connect to it in any way that I would be able to keep the audience interested. And what the story was, if I can tell this quickly, but the, the you know, the lead character in the Americans is a character named Philip played by Matthew Reese, and he's an undercover uh, agent for the Soviet union. And, uh, he's the hero oddly in an American show, <laughs> Russian spies are the heroes, uh, and he's he's lost his uh, the person who is his handler, uh, namely his superior. He was played by Frank Langella. He's left the country, so so Philip is on his own. And uh, there's a scene suddenly where he's in disguise and he goes to meet a priest, a Russian Orthodox priest, and he interrogates him for information. This priest is doing undercover work for the for the KGB, uh, and by forcibly he's doing it. And uh, the scene was just two pages long of just a lot of gibberish, a lot of talk about some report about what's happening at this diocese. And we've never seen him. We've never met any of the characters he's talking about. And uh, Philip says goodbye. And I'm thinking, why is this scene here? And they gave me explanations which really weren't very helpful. And they said things along the line, well, this used to be you know, Franklin Jellis' character used to handle him too, and now he's gone. And we wanted to show how, you know, they gave me a bunch of examples of, of that didn't really, it had some historical significance, how the KGB would force Russian Orthodox priests to spy for them, but it didn't really motive power empower the story like you're saying. You know, a viewer would be watching say, why am I watching this? What's really going on? How does it relate to the story as a overall? And we couldn't come up with a real reason. And I asked the writers, as, well, what what what's what's going on in this priest character what's driving him and the best they could come up with is, well he's lost his only friend in Frank Langella because he's the only one he can be honest with because he has to spy on his fellow priests and he's sad about that and he wants he, he wants a new friend he wants Philip to be his new friend and I said okay well I understand that it's not a very compelling character he's kind of pathetic and I'm not sure how interested anybody's going to be in this character and they said, and then and then they revealed to me, well, we need him to establish him because in the next episode, Philip needs a Russian Orthodox priest to marry him and his arranged-for wife. they had been living as a as a, a you know a, in a fake marriage to be spies in the United States, and they've fallen in love in the course of the show, and they need a real priest to do it. And then I understood. Oh, I see they they need to they need to establish this character for the next episode but how mm-hmm. am i going to make it compelling in this episode and that that was a really difficult challenge and uh we got to the day of filming and and you know i told the actors okay this is the best i can come up with for your subtext you know matthew your character you, you know your intention is you just want to get in and get out and uh i spoke to the, father, the character playing uh, father andre the priest I said and you're motivation is you want a new friend and you know, it, it just seemed so bloodless and uninteresting and we staged it and the actors went away and I was just telling myself, Well, I guess not every scene's gonna be great, but maybe the audience won't really notice but I knew that wasn't likely to be true. <laughs> and I kept asking myself, Well, how can I make this compelling? How can I make this interesting to me and may and therefore to the audience and I just as the crew was lighting and the actors were getting ready I suddenly I just started to question. I said, Well, who who becomes a priest to begin with? What, what's a, what's a priest's real motivation? Well, it's to kind of give. It's kind of to be there for his congregation. It's it's to kind of give solace to characters. It's to help them on a spiritual path. It's to bear witness to their inner struggles. And I thought to myself, Well. It would be great. Now that's a character I could care about. I can't care about a guy who's just pitiable and looking for a friend and is kind of betraying all of his fellow priests. That's not really someone I can care about. But I thought if he were if he were that priest, the one who's you know, became a priest because of that was his calling, I could care about him. And then I wondered I wonder if he could be performing that function right here. And I started to think, Well, that's interesting because I started to look at the dialogue and I saw that He mentioned how important it was to Frank Langella's character that they meet and talk about things. And whereas we had been rehearsing it the way the tone meeting, the writers had told me, like, well, he's just trying to impress, uh, you know, Matthew Reese that maybe, you know, he could be his friend too. I thought, well, what what uh, what if Frank Langella needed spiritual counsel? And he can't really tell Matthew that. Because that would be the end of his, his. That would be the end of his handling Matthew, uh, and the priest knows the sensitivity of that, and is trying to convey to Matthew. What if the priest is sensing Matthew's own spiritual crisis, which the show is all about? Because the show is charting Philip's, that's Reese's character, Philip's journey into a kind of spiritual awareness that there's something more than than spying and that the ends justify the means. And he's really struggling with that. And I said, what if I were able to bring that into the scene and the priest is actually perceiving that but can't be so bold as to talk about it directly. And what if he's conveying to Matthew that, you know, I could be here for you in the same way I was here for your previous boss. Mm-hmm. And that suddenly struck me as brilliant because of, of, of uh, an opening into the deeper, it would enrich the character Frank Langella played to see he had this whole other dimension, which we never knew about. And it would bear witness to Philip's own struggle. So I, I won't go further with it, but that's how we, that's the subtext we gave the scene. We didn't change a word of dialogue, but it allowed the whole scene to take, to come to life. And the best thing about it, one of the best things about it I appreciated was it helped not just the story I was telling but it helped the story going forward because it made better sense of why Philip would ask this priest to be the one to marry them. So that was a ha- very happy example where I was fortunate to come up with a solution at the last minute to a difficult difficult problem for me. There are other times I haven't been so ingenious at the last minute but that's one that uh, fortunately uh, a, a solution came.
0: But this is your own creativity. That is you delving into the story and the characters and the whole thing and being relentless to find what's really going on
1: here. Well, that's
2: that's exactly how I define my job. That's all I'm, frankly, that's all I'm really interested in. I mean, I do it to come alive myself, to, to find the juice, the life, the deeper meaning of surface events. And, you know, when they don't interest me in a scene, that's where, you know, I feel compelled to dig deeper. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the writers repeatedly if I don't think something is, you know, landing in a deep way, sometimes to the, sometimes to the point of irritating them. And I'm not going to win every battle and I'm not going to solve everyone. But to me, that's the great joy in this. If I can bring a sense of life to the story and, and significance at stakes, that's what I think we're all tuning in for
0: the stakes the stakes were always high in that film it started the moment the first scene. you know even though you've been watching it for years every time you turned it on you went what this what's gonna happen the show
2: was genius well I'll tell you something else Carol that I appreciate about the show is in some ways and some uh, people have commented on this before but the story is this is a great example of how you define the story yeah, yeah. the story on one surface level was about espionage and these agents and all that. But on a deeper level, it's really about relationship, I think. And it's about, you know, a marriage. And, mm-hmm. and, fi- and these two characters who start out relatively estranged and superficial and finding the depth of real connection. That's a deeper story than the surface story. And uh, the stakes, what is so brilliant about it, too, is like they're forced by the situation to, to hang in together, whereas a normal couple, you know, having the kind of conflicts they've had throughout the show would probably just divorce. They can't because they're spies, and they have mm-hmm. to pre- keep up this, this, pre, you know, this uh, appearance of a, being a normal American family. So they don't have that option, they have to hang in, they have to stay in the pressure cooker of a relationship, the container of the relationship. And the story is then take advantage of that to show them working, working out, uh, uh, the difficulties and then the stakes being so hellacious you know a misstep can lead to death in some way I think metaphorically addresses what it can feel like in a relationship if you're if you're you know really really willing to explore the depths of your own character and and terrors and inhibitions and defenses and all that that may be stretching it a bit it's also just a good story to have high stakes like that Yes,
0: it is. That's wonderful. Well, um, we're running out of time. I've just I've had learned so much. I can't begin to tell you. Thank you for all of this. Oh, thank you. But I'm I'm really impressed with your book. There's so much information in there, and it gives and it is perfect for just film buffs, people like me who just love a good movie. (laughs) Uh, by reading this book, you're going to get uh, so much closer to your characters, and you'll be watching how scenes are laid out. And why did he put the camera there? And all of those things. It just enriches your experience with the film. Well, I hope, so what, I
2: hope it. I hope. hope. I hope it also, in line with what you're saying, I hope it acquaints viewers with an awareness that when they're watching a show, it's not just. It just didn't fall out of the sky like that. It's the mm. result of, of thousands of moment-to-moment choices. It's like, you know, every time you see the camera positioned in a certain place, you can be aware that it could have gone, uh, you know, hundreds of other places. And every time you see a performance happen here where the emotional high point of a scene happens where it happens, it didn't have to happen there. That's, that was the result of the choices the actors and the director made together. Let's make this the key moment. Or let's make this the key angle to shoot it from you know it's like and and when things don't work you know as well as you think they might it may be because the right choice wasn't made so it's 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 a handmade thing even though it comes off slick and you know and quickly produced
0: (laughs) it looks so perfect but when you start looking at each over the hundreds of decisions that went into Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm. every scene you realize how yep. uh, all of those names at the end of the show do play an integral right. part in the film, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Well, now, I understand that you do presentations, so how could people get to your website and learn what the dates are yeah. and what's going on? Well,
2: I, nothing right now is scheduled. I do. I am going to be participating in a, work, a couple of workshops where University of Virginia does a film Forum every year. That's going to be in late July. I'll be doing a couple of things there. Right now, I don't have any other. Um, I'm doing a couple other blog, uh, podcasts and stuff. But I, nothing else is really scheduled at the moment. I have a website, danattias. dot com. Uh, one word, Dan Danattias. D A N A T T I A S. dot com, where people can also order, order the book if they'd like, uh, and it gives also, you know, some more examples of my work, clips and things like that. Uh, and I'll try to keep that posted when, with appearances, but right now uh, I'm pretty busy directing. I'm off to New York to finish up an episode of Billions, the, show, the Showtime show Billions. Uh, but I'm, I expect later in the fall and into 2022, I, I will have some speaking engagements. Okay,
0: that sounds marvelous. Well, Best of Luck with Billions, I, that's another film that I love. It's that's really full of uh, empowering
2: information. <laughs> well, thank you. And it's been a pleasure. Okay. And Carol, let me let me thank you for all the work you've done in, in helping independent filmmakers, uh, you know, realize their dreams and make make films.
0: Well, wow, how kind of you. Thanks. I love it. This is a great in- <laughs> industry.
2: Yeah, it really is. OK,
0: well, good luck with your film work on billions and the future okay. and the book sales. Yeah. That's
1: thank very you so much okay. I appreciate it okay Th- bye bye thank you Claire bye Dan you're welcome bye. thank you Dan be well everyone okay bye now in its second edition Carol Dean's popular book The Art of Film Funding has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer how to make an ask For Money, Create Your Story Structure and Your Trailer, Legal Advice, Fair Use, Successful Crowdfunding, How to Ask for Music Rights, and What Insurance You Can't Shoot Without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com.